This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. Off Scripts Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us. I'm Robbie Greenfield, and alongside me is Chris McCarty and Sona Rapani. Working our way through the years, we'll highlight world events, cultural achievements, and the stories that have been forgotten. Uh, so, as you might recall, if you are one of those regular listeners, mm-hmm. the time capsule took us from 1980 all the way through to 2011, which was pretty random. But yeah, we stopped, stopped there. A dick, you know, it kind of, kind of it shuddered to a halt. Mm-hmm. Did the time capsule, and we gave it a break. And after a while, absence made the heart grow fonder, <laughs> and we decided to bring it back. And that's what we've done. Uh, we've gone back 50 years. We're going to do the 70s, but we're going to start in 1971 for a reason that I'm not going to get into. Uh, but it is a nice round number. We're travelling back 50 years in time. And, uh, you know, when I looked into this, I realised a couple of things. One, things were just so much more creative in both music and film. Yeah. And two... There were some incredible things that were made or launched in 1971 that are still indelibly linked to today. Mm. Okay. The Divorce Reform Act oh, that, that's <laughs> of 1971 we okay. uh, was launched in the UK, and this made it way easier for married couples to say, listen, enough's enough, I'm punching out. Uh, but prior to that, it was extremely difficult to punch, to, to, to punch out, to get a divorce. And um, this became known as the so-called quickie divorce, mm. where basically the principle of quote-unquote irretrievable breakdown became a legitimate grounds for separation. Yeah. In other words, what you're saying is, we're just not into this anymore. Yeah. We just, we can't, this, this is not working out. You couldn't, that was not a valid reason prior to this like they'd have needed to try to kill you or something you know something really serious whereas irretrievable breakdown is just you know he's going that way i've gone this way and uh yeah ta-da we want to just officialize this now of course funnily enough as soon as it was made easier for people to get a divorce divorces went through the roof really which basically means that a lot a lot of people were just living in misery under the same roof going i wish it wasn't so difficult to get a divorce because i'd be straight down there to sign my papers and then they legalized it and i'm sure there was a queue down the block so in 1961 in the uk this is two people divorced for every 1000 people Okay. Right. Fast forward 50 years and scribbler.com. Don't ask me for the validity. So of 1961 this or 1971? 1961. So okay. this is before the act came in. Yeah. This is the stat I found. Two people out of every thousand got divorced. In, uh, 19, in 2021, 42% of married couples are expected to get divorced at some point. Right. Wow. So if there's a thousand. Couples, Rob. So it just shows the generational change. Oh, don't ask me that. Don't ask me the Come math Come on, there. Rob. A thousand couples. Oh, 400. And what? 42%. 401. <laughs> 402. <laughs> Rob, you're mad for mad. Oh, 420. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought you were joking at first. I no. love it. I love the fact yeah. you are one of the most impressive men I've met. Just the maths. <laughs> just a blind spot. It's fine. We've all been there. We've all got a blind spot. Uh, isn't that amazing, though? That is and it, it just shows a cultural shift as well. 
Uh, and it just it, it also underlines the fact that I, I do believe that marriage back in those days, pre 1970s, and again we're talking about something very specific to this is UK. Mm. Obviously, traditions and cultures vary dramatically around the world, but I do believe 50, 60 years ago, you make your bed, you lie in it. Mm. Now it's okay to to go your separate ways. There's no longer a stigma, you know. The relationship doesn't work out. It's not all binding. Now that could be a good or a bad thing. Depending on the situation, of course. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Each um, own and all, but, but there is no doubt. I found yeah. that interesting. Yeah, 40%. Starbucks opened its first store in 1971 in Seattle, Washington. See, I think that kind of amazes me. I would have thought that was a little later. Me too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because it what kind of blew up in the 90s, didn't it? Correct. So the fact that it opened in 1971 is surprising. Yeah. yeah. The Nike swoosh was designed. You might be familiar with this story. Are you guys familiar with it? We have told this story, actually, yeah, yeah. on this show. Carolyn Davidson was paid $35 for designing the Nike logo. And I've got the backstory to this, just to refresh your memories. She was a graphic design student at Portland State University. She'd met Phil Knight, then assistant professor at the uni, two years prior to that in 69. And um, he would go on to found Blue Ribbon Sports, which ultimately became Nike. Now, he knew that Carolyn Davidson needed to make some extra cash to take some painting classes, so he asked her to help him on some projects at a rate of $2 an hour. Um, Knight came up with the idea of creating a mark, a signature mark that he could put on the side of his shoes, and Carolyn Davidson went away, came back with the now legendary, iconic Nike swoosh, which Phil Knight didn't even particularly like, but ended up using it. And she was paid $35 for the job. I love that because you read this verbatim as well. Davidson came up with this Nike, Nike swoosh, a checkmark shape that is fluid and indicates movement and speed. You can see Phil Knight selling that in, can't you? Yeah. But what is the, the logo? Well, it embodies fluidity, yeah. Yeah, it's movement. A check you know what I'm you know, saying? It's about getting it done. It's, exactly. <laughs> Exactly that. You can see that jargon. And, and listen, $35 for a... And they used to really rail against calling it a tick. Do you remember when, when people used to call it a Nike tick, I remember, in the, in the 90s, and we, we got told off for that. It wasn't mm. a tick, it's a swoosh. Mm-hmm. Like this is a guy didn't even like it at first. <laughs> Don't tell us what it's called. You, yeah. you weren't even that keen on it. You paid a $35. We'll call it what we like. Thank you very much. And think of what that is worth now. Unbelievable. Uh, Wayne's pointing out that the UAE, it's a great point. I hadn't popped this into the time capsule, but of course the UAE 50th, was born. 50th anniversary. 1970. That's yeah. why we've gone back to 1971. Yeah. Thank <laughs> well you very done, much, Wayne. Well done, Rob. Uh, so, yeah, the year of the 50th. And indeed it is. The crucial states became the United Arab Emirates. Yes, they did. 1971. Um, let's move on to movies. And this is going to underscore my point. I would say music-wise, it was an amazing year. Film-wise, it was still a good one. And uh, let's go to our first film. Clint Eastwood and director Don Siegel changed action cinema forever with a film called Dirty Harry, which was a crime drama about a take-no-prisoners cop who also gets the dirtiest jobs in his city and the killer that he's trying to bring down. It was a massive box office hit. Critics were divided. There were some political messages in the film. But the result of it all was that Clint Eastwood became the biggest movie star in the world. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But Ian, this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? 
Well, do you, punk? What a movie. The Dirty Harry. I've got them on DVD. Harry, uh, Dirty Harry Callahan, Clint Eastwood. They're awesome movies. They're very violent, but they're brilliant. This will be no surprise. I haven't seen it, but the acting there. <laughs> Clint. I mean. I mean, it's a little over the top at times. But a little bit better when you've got the visuals. Because yes, that audio there, I was just nah, felt I mean, like he was reciting a script there. No, you got to watch it. If mm. you watch it back now. I mean, he's oh, a bit. His, his performances in Westerns are legendary. I'm oh, they are. For a pretty good reason. Clint Eastwood, yeah, absolutely. The, the Dirty Harry, Harry Callahan movies, watch them, Sonal, is what yeah. I would say. They, they maybe haven't aged all that well, but they were classics back in the day. Love I them. think audio from old films, generally speaking, from what I just, even just rooting around for some 1971 films, it's not the best. No. And the, the, the audio quality isn't the greatest. But yeah, definitely worth, uh, worth a watch. And a couple of stats from this film. Frank Sinatra was supposed to be Dirty Harry. Um, Clint Eastwood stepped in late on. Frank Sinatra had to pull out due to injuring his hand. Clint Eastwood stepped in as a kind of as a last minute recruit. He also did his own stunts. Eastwood, a bit of a Tom Cruise of his day. Um, he uh, the scene in which Harry chases down Scorpio, who has kidnapped a busload of children. Mm. The character is required to leap from a trestle bridge onto the top of a moving bus, and Eastwood apparently did that leap himself. Wow! Oh, fair play. Yeah. I've always said any actor that's doing his or her own stunts, yeah, they go up a notch in mm. my estimations. One more before the news. Diamonds are forever. We've obviously all had our say on No Time to Die. 50 years ago, it was Sean Connery who was fed up with the character of James Bond. Now it's Daniel Craig. They all hate him in the end. Uh, This was the seventh movie in the 007 franchise, and it was Connery saying, all right, I'll do it one more time, but this is the absolute last. And I think he came back for some unofficial one a few years later. But uh, it had actually been sandwiched in between George Lazenby's outing on Her Majesty's Secret Service which he was set to come back to but didn't want to take the part up again. He was obviously the only actor who's ever played just the one time, Mm. uh, James Bond. So they were looking around, they were considering, of all people, Adam West... The guy that played Batman. Batman. Yeah, he was in the running. Slapstick Batman. Yeah, the camp Batman. Yeah, he could have been James Bond. That's crazy. Thank God Connery came back and decided to do it one more time. He's back in a new Bond spectacular. And he's back as Blofeld. Good evening, 007. The canals of Amsterdam. To the rocket sites of Nevada. Sean Connery. Alias James Bond 007 is back in action. Curious how everyone who touches those diamonds seems to die. The trailers back in those days as well needed a bit of work, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, they weren't the polished articles of today. They but I'm not, not sure. Is basically telling the entire movie plot from today's trailers much better? I think we should do away with trailers. Like, do a little uh, teaser. Tease. 30-second mm. teaser. But every trailer that I've inadvertently watched over the past however many years, you get the whole movie. Right. You know true. everything that's going to happen, the, the including movies, the ending sometimes. It's the movies you walk into the cinema not having a scooby about what right. you're to, about to watch. It does tend to be the best cinematic experiences. It's got to be said. Clint Eastwood, I'll say it, despite the fact that clip of him playing Paddy Callahan maybe doesn't shine him up in a good light. Trust me when I say... He is a good actor, and it's well worth checking the most on. And we cannot possibly leave the films without...
without touching on this one. One of my favourite films from my childhood, at least. Cinematic classic, uh, the adaptation of Roald Dahl's 1964 book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, it was called. And, of course, we all know the story. It turned Gene Wilder, the man who played Willy Wonka, into a cultural icon. And uh, one by one, each child meets their demise in the Chocolate Factory. I've just clipped up this because it makes me laugh. This is a clip of Augustus Gloop falling into the Chocolate River. Dive in, save him! Oh, it's too late. Too late? He's had it now. The suction's got him. Augustus, come back! Where is he? Watch the pipe. How long is he going to stay down, Daddy? He can't swim. There's no better time to learn. It's just so dry, and it was classic Roald Dahl. It was yeah. just such evil behind the sort of the kind of gist of what was being said. But Gene Wilder tells a great story about how he had one condition before accepting the part. Take a listen. And Mel Stewart, the director, came to my home, and he said, "You want to do it?" I said, "Well, I'll tell you. I'd like to do it if I can come out, and all the crowd quiets down, and I'm I'm using a cane." Oh, my God, Willy Wonka is crippled. And I walk slowly, and you can hear a pin drop, and my cane gets stuck in a brick. And I do, I fall over on my face and do a forward somersault and jump up, and they all start to applaud. He said, what, Mel Stewart said, what do you want to do that for? I said, because no one will know from that point on whether I'm lying or telling the truth. He said, are you saying you won't do the film? If, if you can't do that, I said, that's what I'm saying. Okay, we'll do it. <laughs> so there you have it. Bizarre request, but he insisted on Dedicated it. Dedicated to his craft, yeah, you absolutely. can tell. And Peter Ostrom, who played Charlie, of course, that was the only film he ever starred in. Hmm. He later went on to become a dairy cattle veterinarian. As you do. Go yeah. On. He decided that the life of Hollywood was not for him and just made some rare appearances. In in fact, he spoke after Gene Wilder's death. Um, He spoke at a memorial. But other than that, he's done very few interviews. He has just gone back into normal everyday life. And that was uh, he he was a child star that never kind of went and, and continued on down that road. Let's get on to some music now, because this was undoubtedly, in my opinion anyway, one of the great years in music history. Before we even get onto the songs that came out this year, some of the bands that formed this year, Queen, The Eagles and Roxy Music, formed in were 19- all formed in 1971. YouDiscoverMusic.com says about the year, it was where everything seemed to come together. The sense of possibility, both good and bad, hangs over the best albums of that year. The biggest acts of the 60s were trying new things. Plenty of new voices were emerging to challenge what had come before. Motown stars were taking big chances. Beatles were going solo. It was an unbelievable year for a wide range of music. So let's start with a guy we've talked about on the show before uh, Rolling Stones have said that this is on their top 500 list the greatest album ever made uh, Marvin Gaye and the soul revolution that, that really he sparked with a work that came out of a very tough time for him professionally and personally and ultimately proved to be his most important work and this is the title track What's Going On You know we've got to find our way To bring some Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see Oh, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Yeah, what's going on? Oh, what's going on? Oh, what's going on? 
is a it is a great song, and the whole album. I haven't actually given it a proper listen for a while, but uh, definitely gonna definitely gonna dig it out. Um, and it's told all the songs are told from the point of view of a Vietnam veteran returning to his home country to witness injustice, suffering, etc., etc. Um, a lot of critics, musicians, general public, they say it's one of the greatest, most landmark recordings in popular music. It is fantastic. That album. Uh, this was also the year that Rolling Stones released one of their best works, Sticky Fingers, mm-hmm. featuring songs like Brown Sugar, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, Sister Morphine, and this classic track. The origins of this one, it started as a song for Keith Richards' newborn son, Marlon, and ultimately then it became a weird, touching tribute to Mick Jagger's relationship with Marianne Faithful, which was disintegrating at the time. So I'm not sure exactly where that song sprung from, but there were a couple of sources to it. Origins, And sticking with the rock genre, this, I mean, one of my favourite songs, a surefire contender for the best rock song of all time. Uh, Led Zeppelin, they came out with the album Led Zeppelin 4. We've played Jimmy Page's legendary guitar solo on the show before, but uh, let's just hear it one more time, shall we? Stairway to Heaven was never released as a single to the general public. It was actually first released in 2007, on November the 13th. Um, their entire back catalogue was made available as legal digital downloads. Right. And um, it peaked at number 37 in the UK charts, which confirms everything that I knew about popular music, i.e. <laughs> I- it sucks. Yeah, it does. It's ridiculous. Um, Robert Plant spent much of the 70s answering questions about the lyrics he wrote for the song. Uh, When asked why the song was so popular, he said it could be its abstraction, adding, depending on what day it is, I still interpret the song a different way, and I wrote the lyrics. Mm. Um, I want to play this clip from, if you go down, Chris, by Joni Mitchell. Uh, who was in great yeah. form for her album Blue. Uh, generally, again, one of the greatest albums of all time, uh, according to music critics across the board. Uh, her songwriting, compositions, and the vocals on this. This is a song called River, and the vocals are just unbelievable. I'm going to make a lot of money, then I'm going to quit this crazy scene. I wish I had a river I could skate away on.
beautiful. That's a beautiful song, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That could be a nice, uh, <laughs> could be a funeral. nice funeral casket song. <laughs> Might be Annie's there. song. <laughs> I knew you were going there. After the flute drop, uh, Johnny yeah. Mitchell and River gets my vote. I've, I've got a pop culture fact for you, which I know you enjoy, Chris. Yeah. It appears in the 2003 movie Love Actually, oh, when it? Alan Rickman's character asks his wife what music they're listening to. Later in the film, she opens the Christmas gift to discover yeah, it's necklace. a Joni Mitchell CD. Yeah, Joni Mitchell. He buys the necklace that's, for the yeah. girl. That's like the saddest storyline of the whole movie, oh, isn't it? Just, yeah. Breaks it, your heart. It does a wee bit. Bless her. Yeah. Um, another legendary singer was in reflective mood in 1971. Oh. So I turned myself to face me But I've never caught a glimpse how the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test Ch-ch-ch-changes Turn and face the strain Ch-ch-changes Don't want to be a richer man Ch-ch-ch-changes Turn and face the strain great song that was uh, for me uh, kind of made oh, I'd say made worse but didn't one of the Osbournes was it was it Ozzy Osbourne's daughter what's the oh, daughter might called have been. yeah really? you're right what's her name maybe oh Kelly didn't Kelly yeah potentially Roger. yeah I think she covered it and ever since I've been like oh, come on nothing worse than a bad cover correct I'm with you on that from one more just very quickly we started with soul we'll finish with it bill withers oh. uh, who released the album just as i am featuring this timeless track oh, this is this is an amazing year for music wonder this time where she's gone wonder if she's gone to stay ain't no sunshine when she's gone this house just ain't no home anytime she goes away and i know 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 this was his first hit and he'd spent nine years in the U.S. Navy where he ran into a guy called Booker T. Jones who was also involved in the production of Marvin Gaye's album, I believe. And he'd been down on his luck, hadn't got a recording contract, met up with this guy, ultimately had a session at a place called Stax Records where Otis Redding and quite a few other legends had recorded. And uh, they brought in a, a little band for him and they recorded that song. It's an amazing song. It also features, because I watched this recently, in Notting Hill, Hugh Grant, Julia Roberts. Does- it. Yes, it does. That I did song. not know that. That's a little pop That's culture a reference great for Rob. Song, Other songs of the year: John Lennon, Imagine, oh, The Who, oh. Barbara O'Reilly, wow. The Doors, L.A. Woman, The Beach Boys, Surfs Up, and Rod Stewart, Maggie May. What a year! Seventy-one. Bubba O'Reilly, as you well know, is one of my favourite songs. And John Lennon, Imagine. Mm. I mean, that is. Yeah, what a year. Right then, 1971, we're only halfway through. We'll talk sport. We are, yes, and you know, sport as a kind of commercial entity mm. really started to motor i believe in the 80s and then massively into the 90s, 90s. Yeah. looking back at some of the clips um there were no frills really one of the most important sporting events of all time to kick off but in terms of you know the the sort of pomp and ceremony around sport it hadn't been no. fully commercialized kind of capitalized in that time it was a, just a different era for professional sport and we're going to go to boxing madison square gardens March the 8th, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier 
fight of the century and it's widely regarded this fight as one of the best boxing matches in history all the talk of the Wilder Fury trilogy the ultimate the original trilogy was Muhammad Ali and smoking Joe Fraser. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the first time ever that two undefeated boxers who had held or who were in possession of the world heavyweight title had fought each other for that title. It was loads of acrimony. At the time, they were bitter rivals and they, it was politicised as well because it had come off the back of Ali had, had been stripped by his titles by boxing authorities for refu- refusing to fight and to sub- submit to the Vietnam draft. And he'd become a symbol of sort of left-wing anti-establishment. And Frazier had been adopted by the sort of conservative right, yes. the pro-war movement. So it was, there was so much going on with this fight. I did dig out a clip. The audio isn't great, but it's just you can tell the atmosphere was electric. Everything in the book. Yeah, everything in the book. 15 rounds they fought back then. Mental. Uh, It was an absolutely pitch battle, gruelling fight. 15 rounds. The first of the trilogy, Frazier won it. And it was followed by their rematch in 1974, Super Fight 2. And the ultimate, the decider, Thriller in Melilla. Both of those fights won by the legendary Muhammad Ali um, in 1975, Thriller in Manila. But that was... And you know what as well, Rob? We, we talk about it in the sporting uh, kind of sporting hour and, and any time we, we are allowed to talk, talk sport and we do it and we talk about the fact that you know Floyd Mayweather in the boxing world has made the oh, oh so important and yet there's Muhammad Ali. He lost that first fight but he, he showed his kind of gladiatorial, call it what you will, his ability yeah. to bounce back, make the alterations that he needed to make and again, Again, as a lot of these boxers that we talk to say it's a fight. It's, sometimes it can go wrong on, on, on a certain night. Perhaps you don't wake up, you don't quite feel there. Muhammad Ali came back after that loss and cemented his legacy. Now, I'll put this out there because I also watched a tennis clip and I kid you not, the second serves of the tennis players that I was watching in this clip, Chris Everett and Billie Jean King, I'd be surprised if they were over, if they were over 50 miles an hour. Mm. Um, now, I will put this to you that boxing, heavyweight boxing is the only sport that's arguably gone backwards in the last 50 years. If you look at Deontay Wilder and his technique, Chris, this guy can't box. We know he's got a big punch, but if you look at the the craft, the ring craft of Joe Fraser, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, Joe Louis, all of those guys. I thought you were going to say it's the only sport where you could probably say to 50 years ago to now, you could see not a plateau per se, but it's very difficult with the modern science and stuff to see a difference. In terms of going back... Well, look, I mean, they're much bigger now. Tyson Fury's six foot nine or whatever, and these guys were slighter. They were not as big. But in terms of their skill, I'm just saying when you compare that to tennis, it's so obvious how much the sport has evolved. Football, it's so obvious how much fitness has taken the sport to a new level. Golf would be another one. I mean, Craig Stadler was winning tournaments Mm. you know it it just wouldn't happen now that wouldn't happen but uh, I still feel like boxing in many ways you're talking about big fights where you're looking at your AJ's your Deontay Wilder's yes Tyson Fury's a great fighter but I'm not sure skill wise they're they're up to these guys Mm. I, I mean I'm just putting it out there it would be interesting, be interesting to I, see I want to play this clip because you did reference Billie Jean King and of course Billie Jean King would go on to win the US Open she became the first woman ever in turn, tennis to earn how much? $100,000 take a listen Billie Jean is the winner 
very succinct commentary. Yeah, not, not much else there. Yeah, that's it. And it, again, these clips are just that they do. Uh, they speak to an age where sport was not the the, the media machine that it is now. Billy Jean is the winner. And there we go. Okay, on to the next thing, folks. There'll be a bake sale around the corner, and oh, queue up, roll up, roll up for your cakes. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? I don't know. I'm I want more of that guy on the uh, show. There was, by the way, the US Open was played on grass yes, in 1971. Was. Arthur Ashe uh, was beaten by Ken Rosewall in the Australian Open. John Newcomb won Wimbledon. Yvonne Goulagong won her first Grand Slam at the French Open. And uh, yeah, tennis was just a different planet altogether. By the way, Ajax, Johan Cruyff's Ajax won the European Cup. Yeah, they did. A couple of firsts for you. It was the first time Real Madrid had failed to qualify for the competition. Huh. It was also the first time that penalty shootouts were brought in to decide drawn ties. Prior to that, ties had been decided by the toss of a coin. Toss of a coin. Remember it? Well, well, not that I was around, but I was aware of that Ajax, the great Ajax side of Johan Cruyff. Well done once again, Rob. 1971. <laughs> That's it. Locked in. We'll be back next week with, yep, you guessed it, 1972. Off Scripts Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us. Thank you for listening to the Time Capsule. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and please do, if you've got a moment, give us a review. This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today.